on the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Today on Soundtrack Alley. Join me along with Jason Drury as we delve into the world of Stargate. We'll discuss the movie just a little bit, talk about a few of the special effects that stand out to us, as well as some of the background. And we'll delve deeply into the amazing score by David Arnold. So sit back, relax, as the show begins now. host randy andrews with me today is jason drury jason it's great to have you on the show today yes it's great to join you for the first time i've been enjoying your show from afar these last few months and well, the last few years and um it's a pleasure to be invited to, to do one of the shows and because eric i know is somewhere else i'm sure doing something important and he thought i'd be the a decent person to stand in <laughs> yep and um, Eric, I think he had told me to go ahead because he was super busy with stuff. And I think it was a good match because we've talked before. And uh, I think this is going to be a really enjoyable discussion about a really exciting and enjoyable movie from 1994. When was your first time that you saw Stargate, Jason? Well, I remember the adverts coming around in 94, the Stargate film. I saw the posters and I was intrigued. And when the film came out, I was really looking forward to see it. So I went to the cinema, my, the old Dreamland sim, cinema in Margate, Kent. It's a, it a great big cinema. Not, it wasn't the, the best of cinemas at the time when I saw it, but you know, it was, it was, it was okay. It was, it was a good place to see the film. And um, I was, when I saw the film, I was absolutely amazed. It was really, really entertaining. It was a good, it was good old fashioned. The film itself is good old fashioned entertainment. You just, you know, it's, it's some bits are a bit, you know, well, bit out, out of out of context. You know, well, bit silly, bit far fetched. But it was, you know, it's. It was good old fashioned entertainment. It reminded me a lot of Indiana Jones in some places, but I also remember, also particularly, I think it was on the Empire magazine, some of the pictures, or they showed some of the pictures of the production, and they blew me away, thinking this is going to be one hell of a good epic. And I, 
when I saw the film, it, it didn't disappoint. But also, one of the most important things of that film I remember is seeing that name in the music column, David Arnold. And I'd never heard this composer before. And I thought, this is the time when I really, I was a bit unsure about knowing about, you know, giving new, hearing which composer for new composers I did not know. Now, I thought David Arnold, when I first saw the name, could he, could he be related to Malcolm Arnold, the great British composer from the past who worked on a lot of British films in the 1950s and won an Oscar nomination for the British over the River Kwai? I found out that wasn't the case. He was, this is a different guy, never heard his work, but from the first few notes of the opening main title, I have been a fan of his work ever since. And when we go through school later on in the show i'm sure we will i will explain why he's such one of those important composers i think we've we've produced for film in the uk for me i was still in high school and there was a like what they called it at the time was a dts theater and it was in a town named bellevue that was about 15 miles uh from where i lived and went to the theater and it was in a mall but it was the only screen in that theater that had like this amazing stereo sound and it was the biggest screen that they had and it was just so exciting and thrilling to see like just some of the detail for that film and the whole concept was intriguing and the the exploration was a lot of fun it just it 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 reminded me a lot of times like indiana jones like you said you know it was very it was like oh they dug up this this stargate and and it's like what's gonna come about with that and you don't see anything about it for a while um you see it at the very beginning and then you don't see anything in the film at all until uh james spader is you know down in the military bunker and they finally see it and it's finally revealed and it's like oh wow <laughs> in the film it's like he's got to solve a number of problems before he he's allowed to be to, to see the stargate itself you get the feeling they know the answers if he's got to get if he gets to a certain point then he'll they'll show him he'll be shown the stargate and that's one of the most important i think one of the most important scenes in the film in some ways is to the, the reveal is very well done yeah and i think the writing was really good even though a lot of people didn't understand the film for what it was doing or uh the the direction i guess there was a lot of rewrites with it because a lot of people were really confused with it and that was in even the liner notes because they had to rewrite some of the film to be able to <laughs> have it understood um and so you know i think the story was really tight and oh man david arnold's score was just amazing and then when i knew that we'd get more of him ah oh, it just made it even better uh i mean the score for independence day the score for godzilla um, you know, just on and on. His career just took off from there. And and I had never heard of him either, Jason. And like he, he had been kind of an unknown to me. 
but I fell in love with the film and the score. And it just, it was like, I was just really impressed by like a lot of the sets, a lot of the visual effects. Oh, okay. So there's one point in the film, I got to tell you about this. Because when I first saw it, this is one thing I noticed. So they were coming up to the miners uh, that were mining the ore, you know, and Kushoff. You first see Kushoff. And uh, <laughs> the one thing that I was like, did he say what I thought he said? And it sounded like he said, Indy. And I think, I mean, maybe it was like what he was trying to say in his dialect of, you know, the, the foreign language or whatever. But I'm like, all right, where's Harrison Ford? Where's Indiana Jones? We got to bring him out. Because <laughs> I was I was thinking about how Stargate was just an idea, like originally, you know, it was in a German film school, which is really interesting to me because it didn't start out as some other idea but roland emmerich is he is he german he's german all right because uh it just he he pitched it like an idea of the origins of the egyptian pyramids and um and then he got in contact with dean devlin i liked the fact that this movie had a lot of actually fairly larger named actors in it, mm. such as Kurt Russell. And Kurt Russell had had really struggled because he started out as a Disney actor. Mm. And he had the hardest time breaking away from that because everyone saw him as that Disney actor. But he wanted to star in more adult roles. And Stargate was kind of his breakout in a lot of ways for, you know, being really recognized as someone that could do it. I mean, you, of course, he did like executive decision and, you know, a lot of thrillers and things like that in the 90s. Um, even Breakdown. I love Breakdown. <laughs> but uh, and then James Spader. I mean, James Spader was in early 80s movies like uh, Pretty in Pink. And I mean, he was really young in a lot of shows. And uh, he was in uh, Boston Legal. As far as Kurt Russell's concerned, you did write about him in Disney. You know, he, had, mm -hmm. he started off in these Disney films. But I think the breakout role for him mainly was in the early eighties, like the things like things like the thing, and particularly for me when he is what is real one of his signature roles as Snake Pliskin in. Escape oh yeah, York, Escape like, from New York. Yeah, absolutely yeah. love, and he's like doing a, yeah. doing a, a Clint Eastwood impression for the entire film, but he's really good. <laughs> and also a year before yeah. this, of course, he did another signature role of, of Tombstone when he was right, right up. Which he, oh right, which he also, yeah, which also. I think if you look on the database and a, and a lot of people say that he more or less directed most of that film when they had problems with the director and like the director, Kevin Jar was fired. I think, and it was George P. Cosmotis, I think, uh, didn't direct it the way they, they, they wanted. And I think a lot of the directing uncredited was by Kurt Russell. And 
as he was directing, he toned his part down a little a bit so they could make sure he was not saying under director, so I'm going to get all the best lines. So he's a very fair man, a very fair actor, also in a way a very fair director. You know, you don't hear much about his directing. So the start, the cast for Stargate is superb. Also, there's an actor, I think it's one of the guards, I think called Juman Honso, who had a career gone on doing films like Gladiator, and a lot of mm-hmm. things since. So, and of course, we've got to remember, of course, the person who played Ra, Jay Davison, who was touted for the role because of his performance, his award-winning performance in the film The Crying Game. And to be fair, he he, he creates a very good, a very good persona as a villain, particularly with mm-hmm. the, I know with the eyes and that. I know the eyes, the lit up eyes, but. He 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 turns out for not doesn't say a lot of lines. He doesn't all the, all all the stuff is. But he was um, a very menacing character, as, as, yeah. despite that. Yeah, as I'm about to say, there's a lot of menace in him, particularly some. And uh, as the plot develops, he becomes a real threat to not just uh, the, the team, but also the Earth itself. It's a very good before. Unfortunately, this is his. He retired from acting after this. This is a shame. But uh, yeah, like even um. You know, with uh, with like how I was saying, a lot of people had problems with the plot of the movie. Um, James Spader himself, yeah. he had even said that the original screenplay was awful, but it that it was so bad that it actually intrigued him. And so then he met Roland Emmerich and was inspired by the director's passion for it. And so he decided to even put all the stuff that he could into it to be able to make himself into that role and i think james spader did a really good job uh honing that character's role in the film and what did you think of like a lot of the sets and the design of the like the ships and the pyramids and what did you think of all that Considering it was a fifty-five million dollar movie, and it was compared to a lot of epics, it is quite like medium budget. It did a darn good job, I feel. There's a lot of miniatures used in the film, but if you're looking looking at it on screen, you not you would not think they're miniatures. And also, it's one of those films which appears to have a lot of uh, extras in it, as the the miners, the, the the people on the plan on the planet, and. I know that they did a lot of uh, things like dummies and to make it look bigger and that, but it, you, you will not see that in the film. In, in, you know, you will notice that. As far as you're concerned, they've got a, they've got a lot of crowd there. You don't see films like that with lots of extras, these all these extras coming down and the crowds, particularly in, in the, the execution of vertical commas scene, there's a lot of people there and it's... It looks, it looks... The scope of the film looks epic, but you would not... You thought you some desert in space in reality it was really in the Arizona desert and also the uh, also the, the great uh, production design of the actual Stargates that they, they used the hangar for Howard Hughes's Spruce Goose to build the setting and it is an amazing set real good production design in this film and it's one, it's one of the hard up high points of the film well and another thing to go along with that is the fact that this is a movie that took place a year after Jurassic Park mm. And the digital technology that was used in that film stems, interestingly, to the success of Jurassic Park. And 
thank you, Steven Spielberg. (laughs) We can uh, appreciate what efforts Steven Spielberg did with Jurassic Park. And you can go back in the back episodes of uh, Soundtrack Alley and listen to that episode. But uh, with the success of Jurassic Park, it made this movie so much more successful because they had certain digital technology to be able to use like the the effect of the masks the the metal masks that they had nice. like the hawk or the the wolf i guess it's a wolf um maybe it's a coyote like it's an anubis it's an anubis it's, it's, it's all based on egyptian mythology it's, it's, so it's an egyptian mythology thing yes you can see that this film has a lot of saying that a lot of the egyptian things we see on the hieroglyphs and the pyramids, it could have been of alien design. Personally, think of the possibility. Like how, kind of, can we, there's always been a question about how the pyramids were built and uh, it could have been held by alien technology. And this is a, a film that explores that possibility. There is two versions of this film. And I think it's important, I think we mentioned this now. It is the theatrical version, which starts in 1926, when you see actually find the Stargate. There, on the director's cut, it is, there is one very important scene at the beginning of the film. At 8000 BC, you see this pyramid coming, landing, that like Ra's ship. All these indigenous people seem to run away. And except for one person who moves up, and it's Jay Davison. There's a, the bottom of him you don't see, but you just see his, his face and his shoulders. You see him look up. That's, that, that is Ra. Is human form. He goes in and inhibits, inhibits that that character. He inhibits the that indigenous boy. All the people you see in that in the mining mining village, mm-hmm. those are the descendants of those indigenous people. They took took them all, put them on a the planet, and, and, mm-hmm. and used them as slaves. And that's their descendants. And then, I mean, it makes sense in a lot of ways, but it's also. Part of the extended cut was unnecessary. Like, you know, having that scene, yeah, it's an important scene, but they were able to use that when Daniel was explaining what happened, mm-hmm. what Ra is, and, you know, yeah. how Ra took the boy. And uh, I think it was explained very well. And then you see the visuals along with that as James Spader is explaining it. And and it's like, oh yeah, I can see why they took this out from the extended cut because it's like it was kind of redundant. So yeah, it just wasn't necessary. But like uh there was a couple scenes that were the conversation between the general and Jackson, or not Jackson, uh O'Neill. O'Neil. You know, they had that because they had seen the image or the uh it was almost like a exoskeleton yes of one of the soldiers yes but it was encased in like rock or sand and you saw that same image earlier in the um in the extended cut mm. back in 1928 when they revealed the is stargate is this some kind of fossil and you see it on you see it on the wall, and it says, "You know what to do. If anything goes south, you know what you have to do." And you know, considering they they had that important scene of O'Neill with his family, his son has just been 
he just killed himself. So he's very, very down and very. So he, so he was like a perfect. He, when he when he signed on for the mission, he wanted to be. This was he knew he was going to be a one way trip. And that's uh, but you see that scene when one of the one of the small boys and in, in in the group starts playing with the gun. So don't play with the gun. Don't play with that. It's like trauma. It is a trauma. It was complete it trauma is. that the character was going through. P- it's PTSD. It's it's it's. it's, 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 it's that's yep. exactly what it is and he was um the flawed character i think they handled it really well mm. in the film and i, I, I mean because it's a great line i think in the film at the start when he said when the, 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 old, the old woman who's one in one in the, the research says uh, why why are you here o'neill says i'm i'm here if you succeed yeah there's had a couple of good lines in this film and that's a real yeah line. <laughs> yeah Yep, I can think of a few other ones. They say they don't like the script, but there's some some great, there's some real little mini good lines that really enhances the film. Sort of thing you get get any sort of epics, like real lines that make moves the plot along, and that was one of them. And also Spader, you know, coming out like like a fish out of water, and uh, the army because he. They expect him to, right, you're going to find it now straight away. No, you can't. It's not like that. You got to. We got need to find these. You need to find the symbols. We can't, of course. I can. I can said I can do it, but I need to find the symbols. Then I can get you home. They want. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought you could do this here and now. Like give the symbols to a bit off the go. It's like no, it's it doesn't work like that. It's not like that. <laughs> and they seem. And they seem. Yeah. To, they seem to shun him. It's only towards the end of the film, and I realize how you know. Then he gets a lot more. Respect. They appreciated his. Uh... Yeah, abilities. But, yes, he, he gets a lot more respect. At the beginning, it, it's you know, this, what's this guy doing? He's 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 marooned us on this planet. Oh, I don't want to know him. But as, as the film progresses, he becomes a, the the soldiers that have the, the the team that actually survives. What happens? So he's very important to the team to for them still to go home. Uh, one of the characters that we overlooked was French Stewart. Do you know what else he's been in? He was yeah. in Third Rock from the Sun. Oh yes, the show Third Rock from the Sun, and then he was in uh, uh, a few sitcoms, but he was also in um, Mikhail's Navy. <laughs> but he was like a kind of an unknown in that movie too, because mm-hmm. it's like you didn't recognize him who he was. Um, but he actually played a pretty serious character. He had you know a few funny lines to it, but. Uh, I almost forgot that he was in that too. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and get into the soundtrack part of the the discussion now. We got some good good background on David Arnold. Uh, that we can talk about. Um, I thought it was really interesting in the liner notes that David Arnold commented on the sets for the film and said that they were absolutely enormous and it wasn't in green screen. They built all a lot of these sets for real and it was amazing to look at. And that again reminds me of Jurassic Park because so much of that film was practical effects or practical sets and uh stargate was the same way there was so much practicality that it was tangible everything was tangible 
Um, you know, the only parts that were computerized were the scenes that you didn't need the ability to touch those things. Does that make sense? I think so. I think a lot of the CGI is a film like that is successful CGI wise if you don't realize there's CGI going on. One of the qualities of the film is that there isn't that much CGI there. There's a lot of it mm-hmm. is there because there's a, lot, there's a lot of good dialogue scenes, a lot of good. This is important in science fiction in some way. You don't. If you see a film like. I'll give, give you many examples of films like this, but who it's just all CGI and no plot. We won't talk about stuff in the past with Emmerich, but as far as this was, far as this was concerned, it was a definite attempt for the to try and you know the characters flesh out the, the characters in this film, particularly of course all Neil and Jackson. And it was in particular yep. there's this one scene where. I think it's I think it's fin, I think it's Finn Stewart. Finn Stewart goes down to O'Neill, and he knows that something's different, and he he's not been told the mm-hmm. full, full orders. And also, we find out that uh, Jackson knows about what happened to O'Neill, and um, it's very clear what is going to happen. He, he's there. He's there. To, you know, he, he tells them the, his orders. He's on separate orders to the rest of the group. And mm-hmm. in the end, all that as it goes out the window, particularly when uh, Rog gets hold of the nuclear weapon, and he's going to send it back, and it's going to blow the world up. So, mm-hmm. so it's in, so the the, 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 the scenes of them leveling with what exactly was happening, and making sure they realise they've got to be on the same the same the same sheet to save not just this planet, but also the also the world. And you need good actors to work it and to do the sort of things. And James Spader, as producer, is always is coming in, producing some fine work. At the end of the day, James Spader is a really good actor, and he's developed mm-hmm. more over the years, even since Stargate. Why don't you tell tell us about David Arnold and how he got involved in Stargate? David Arnold has done. He started off at a film school with a certain guy called Danny Cannon. And Danny Cannon has also been a director. I think he directed, he, he directed um, if I remember something right, the Judge Dredd film with Star Sylvester Stallone. So they started off together. David Arno produced, scored Danny Cannon's student films, his short films. And also he, he scored the first film, first feature film by Danny Cannon, which is The Young Americans, which was a small film which starred Harvey Keitel. Now, this film features Arnold's first score. He's, he's, even even in his first score, he was scoring with, with orchestras like the National National Symphony. I think they're called National Symphony on the uh, on the credits. But this is recorded by Mike Ross Trevor as well. So mm-hmm. it's a very it's a interesting. It's a more he only had one day in the recording studio to record the music for the film, so it's highly string orientated, and there's a lot of and uh, is also influenced with Bjork, Bjork was involved in the soundtrack, and he gave and um, that producer produced a hit single, I think, on, in the pop charts as well. So, and has the, the the feature. If you listen to that score, it's a real wonderful string feel to it, and particularly in the Bjork song at the end. You see, the it's a well, it's one of those tunes that you 
when you hear it, I've heard this before. It's that sort of it's that instance. You can clearly mm-hmm. see things that David Arnold had a sound already, even in his first major first score. Now, a few years later, they brought they brought this in. The film was successful. Ben Eric and Devlin wanted to find a composer to score Stargate. Now, the first two films they worked on was uh, first of all was Moon Forty Four. We had Joe Goldsmith, which Devlin had a had a had a active role in the first but how they met in the first place. Then then they then Universal Soldier came along and had Christopher Frank scoring that one. Now this was now they were looking for somebody different. And some, at the time David Arnold work, working in the video score in Luton. So this is not the last place you don't go into video so put in a local blockbuster to find your film composer. But he had work on the Young Americans and Young Americans was produced I think by Mario Casa. And of Caraco and he showed showed these guys showed Emmerich and David in the music and uh, they said what we'll give this, give this guy a go David Arnold he's got his promise so they uh, they, had, they had a chat with him they hired him to write the score Arnold immediately took the bull by the horns and had some ideas had problems finding the main theme now but mm-hmm. uh, on a journey home on the motorway it seemed that it just it's like all those things. Like some, it, it, there is places where you get inspiration, and driving down the M1, I think 190, actually, he had that inspiration. For, you know, and and it, it is a, this is a day before internet or computers, so he had to try to remember it in his head what he thought of. This is his days. This is, in a way, an amazing feat of memory. Wrote it down, sent did a, did a demo, sent it on, on FedEx to. Uh, Emmerich and Devlin, and they loved it, and uh, he produced the score from there. And what's the, one of the most important things of the score and it, of, of Arnold's career is his collaboration with Nicholas Dodd, who orchestrated and conducted this score. And those two really do work together as a team, and particularly on these the three Emmerich scores, as we know of Arnold. And mm-hmm. it is that it is the one of these. This is a guy who would believe it's his first. This is his third, his second feature film. Second feature film he's produced, and he's working with an orchestra like the Symphony of London. And the music is coming out of that orchestra. It's absolutely amazing. He really worked really hard on this score, Arnold. And you can clearly see, particularly in the the Arabian sort of launch of Arabia sort of feels and feel of the score, but. This is a guy who liked his old-fashioned films. He, he was treating the film like an old-fashioned epic, which you don't these days. You don't see as much of these days. Twenty-seven years old, this score, and even now, I've listened to it a couple of times in the last couple of days. I've seen it in context, and it still stands out as one of the great introductions to uh, the mainstream cinema of a composer. And I think I think from the very first note when I heard it on when I first saw it at the cinema at Dreamland all those years ago, as I said, I have been a fan of his work ever since because this guy was he could produce some really great orchestral colours in his music. Yeah, to go along with that, in the liner notes uh, for the 25th anniversary edition of Stargate, the score that had come out, I thought it was really cool that the different describing words that is put out for just the theme alone for the Stargate theme that it was mysterious romantic for brass with a dash of eastern 
exoticism embellished with lovely orchestral flourishes and touches in the spirit of fantasy wizards like John Williams and Goldsmith. And I just thought that was like perfect for describing the like wonder of the theme. So one of the things that really uh, intrigued me about the theme was the little voices that you could hear. All it is, is like the do, re, mi type notes. They were just saying those notes and they were saying them really quiet and they put them all together on top of one another. And it sounded like a foreign language or a foreign like chant. And uh, it was just unique and brilliant the way they constructed it together. I love that. It's a f important thing of a main title is for the, for the, for the rest of the score for the, for the title to be really highly flexible in its use in the movie. And he uses it in a number of different, various, different variations throughout the score, particularly one one with the when James Spader gets the, the, the mustache, I think they call it, that, that weird, weird like cow-like creature, or cows or horse-like creature, and he's dragged along the, 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 the really, really fast mode. It's used a lot in the action music. You can actually hear the theme, national theme of Saga SG-1, wonderful work and it's and they said it still stands out today as as a one of the great sci-fi scores i think of the 1990s and there was a lot of them in, the, in that time and you need to be really really great score to, to, to stand out on it and it is it introduced us to this the wonderful musical orchestral colors of david arnold which um we all know is in a way he would admit himself is a, is a, is a lot of john barry in there there's a lot of john williams <coughs> But it works so well, and it works so well for this film. Every time we get a deal with Arnold in the credits, you know you're going to be in for a listening treat. Oh yeah, for sure. And um, just the different like elements of just that one theme with uh, the the woodwinds and the strings that they they play together, and then you get that kind of that deep brass sound that just I mean, it's not overbearing, but it's there. It's like, it's just there that gives you this thrill and excitement. Uh, and it even gives you elements of some of the themes that you're going to hear in the movie, yeah. like yes. the raw theme or even 
the the theme that goes along with unstable in the score with uh o'neill yes and i i just i love and, it but of course what well, has a, as a major theme that comes out as well which is as you say in actual main theme of, of, of the um of stargate itself but it is a it is a wonderful work and he, he, even i think we'll talk about the album releases it's uh it stood out. I think I played the the album when it first came out a lot, a lot of times as well. And the release of uh, I think there's three releases. One was from Alan Records, and then we had the release from Fred Sarah Band, and then recently we had one from La La Land Records, which in, in which has showed us sort of first time and finally the complete score with some additional extras, which is a great, it's a great release, and is one that also slightly slightly better sound quality. But to be fair, the quality of the recording, the original recording, has always been good. Jeff Foster is one of the greats. It has the advantage of being played at Air Studios, which is an enormous recording studio. Like it's a converted church, and it is a wonderful room. Every score you hear is recorded at Linda, so you can actually hear the size of the room. So let's go ahead and play the Stargate Overture.
Well, Jason, what do you think of entering the Stargate? Now, does this give us our militaristic theme a little bit? Because um, I feel that we get like the awe and the wonder um, mixed with kind of a terror, mm. but also an exhilaration with Daniel and the team entering the Stargate and then going through. And I like, I know this sounds strange, but I like how the queue has some very discordant sounds that come from the horn section and gives you kind of some early tonal variation of some of the music of what even maybe uh, Don Davis's influence, maybe he used some elements of David Arnold's score for his influence of using in the matrix. Um, but not, you know, not too much of it, but just like a hint of it. You know what I mean? I, Don Davis is a great composer and um, he's one of the finest composers in the Matrix series. Proves that beyond all reasonable doubt. Uh, both of these guys know their stuff. I don't think uh, Davis probably was influenced by Stargate, but uh, what Arnold does here, going back to Arnold himself, I think he was influenced not more by what James Spader does in that scene. Because this, I think mm -hmm. I read somewhere, I think I heard somewhere that we we, we heard we listened we heard early in the show about James Spader hated the script. He thought at, at first, and but it kind of mm -hmm. it, it kind of grew on him mm -hmm. here. But he did as an actor. They like to experiment and do different things and do some, you know, make, 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 to make it interesting and maybe add to the script, not in words, but in actions. And in this scene, it's one of the bits which he improvised. Mm -hmm. when, when all the, all, all, everybody else goes into the Stargate, you know, just, just walks in. Spader or Jackson. He, stands, he, st he gets, gets to the point of the Stargate and then he looks and he just feels it and sees the beauty of it. And you see, this is a one, you can see the wonder and the awe in his face. This is a wonder, this is an interesting thing. And contemplates what he's about to do. And Arnold really picks that up in the score. He, he, he sees what Spader's doing there and he adds it to the music. The music is at one point, Barry-esque it turns into in a way. Because he's not just playing the scene, he's playing the emotions of, Spade, of Spader's character, Jackson. He's feeling the beauty of this thing he's about to walk into and contemplating what will happen to him. And when he walks, it walks into it and you see suddenly, whoosh, and the, and the envy, dissonance, the autonomy, the actual, the, the orchestra goes absolutely balmy as it goes through the target uh, yeah. itself really mm -hmm. a lot of weird stuff going on in the orchestra but it's but to set that up was that little bit of the strings with back you know with, with the cue from spader's acting and it's one of the it's one of the great acting scenes in the film and it produces one of the great moments in the score and i think it's one and if it was any chance that he would be one of the top composers yeah, some people. I've always said to people, there's always little moments in films where composers turn from just being a composer to somebody who is one of the top composers. James Hornet in Star Trek II for the 
at the end of the Genesis sequence of the, the last thing with Mrs. Spock's uh, grave. Alan Silvestri had it with a plot to our scenes in Back to the Future. Compulsive mm -hmm. have these moments of suddenly they turn one or one moment into a top compo one of the top composers. In that moment is one that's the moment for me when David Arnold becomes a composer that people will want to score their films. Because that scene is beautifully beautifully scored and particularly that moment is one of the standouts of the score probably one of the standouts of, whole, of uh, Arnold's career per se mm -hmm. yeah for sure let's go ahead and play Entering the Stargate The next cue I'd like to discuss is Ra, the sun god. Now, as we know from the film, Ra is an alien. 
that has enveloped this host of this young man who now is, rules over the people of Abydos. Um, it descends, like in the beginning, it feels like it has this oppressive darkness um, opening with that low, ominous brass, and then it gradually builds in inten intensity with the chanting vocals, and then it re reaches this loud, dramatic climax. And this this hasn't even happened within the first minute of the cue, and how uh, epic the the cue really sounds, and how it stands out to show us this is our villain. Yeah. <laughs> this is our evil person this is the that stares off yeah. into nothing. Yes. <laughs> this is the introduction of the baddie. The, mm -hmm. this, this is the boo hiss moment of the film. And, you know, the, the, and it's music, it's like the, the Arnold's version of the Imperial March. You know, this is, the, you know, it, it really is the bad guy coming in. And there's, there's a lot of... Um, Davison walking along, you know, with his getting looking very evil. Obviously, the cue introduces the character. They, they've, they've caught O'Neill and Jackson. I think one of the other army guys, and then they they do this little attempt, and the music suddenly suddenly changes to action because they're trying to escape, and um, it has a lot of elements, and it's a it's, it shows really also. Arnold's how he can change from a you know from a turn of as you would probably say turn of a turn of a dime spin of a dime he would change from this this abolding music to all our action when they try and make an attempt to escape the music changes like in an instant yeah on a dime it's and, and, instant and it shows shows even now this is remember we're still saying we we can't we can't say this anymore this is only Arnold's second proper film feature film score he's already sounding in this film like a veteran he's really i think he was given a lot of leeway to be able to really broaden his palette of film scoring and you really get this in this cue uh because you know you have the four note motif for ra but then once they're like sitting before him and they're by the two soldiers right there that music changes on that dime and you're instantly like it it goes from very very quiet all of a sudden then goes bum 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 you know and it yeah. just it ramps up right again and you're in amongst the action once again and it's like yeah. whoa what just happened it, it again shows that arnold was is it was already then it was this guy has probably been a fan of action films and he shows that could he use that that sort of expertise, his, his knowledge and his of these sort of works to, to produce this. And uh, it, it, I don't think, if I'm going back thinking about the Young Americans, there isn't many scenes in there with his, with his action quality. And uh, he probably, as an action composer at the time, he had to really prove himself to be, for his to work, he, need, he needed a lot of action stuff in this film particularly towards mm -hmm. the end of it. And this is really, and scoring is, and there's a few scenes beforehand with, with a lot of suspense in the, like particularly when the, the Garold, I think the bad, the bad guys come in and take over the people 
you know, they, they attack the people inside the pyramid, you know, after, after the storm, and, like that, and you, you don't see them, but they, you know, they're being attacked. And so, so that's a great mm -hmm. scene, and it was a well, very well scored. But this also shows, really, there's a dramaticness in the music. It's very, I think I said something we said before, old-fashioned about it. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being old-fashioned. This film is itself mm -hmm. an old-fashioned adventure film. So why not the music be of an old-fashioned nature? And it, and, it, and it benefits for that. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and play Ra, the Sun God.
We have three cues to go. We have Battle of the Pyramid, Kusaf Returns, and the end credits. All right, so this piece that we're going to call the Battle of the Pyramid, it's, to me, one of the epitomes of the action cues mm. in a long line of action cues. It has an amazing array of, like, brass and strings to really kind of illustrate all that's going on in the scene. And to me, I really like it for the fact that, you know, there's so much going on. There's there's three different elements happening all at once because you've got Daniel de dealing with Sherry being shot and he's trying, there's this tense moment where he's like, oh, I don't want them to discover me, you know, because he doesn't want to get shot himself. And then you have the soldiers outside with the kids and they're being attacked by the the flying ships of Ra. And then you have O'Neill that's battling the one Anubis guard that is going on in the battle between the bomb and everything that's going on. So like there's so much frenetic action going on in just this battle of the pyramid is just so much, but it's so good because mm. Arnold just really blushes this out and really makes us care about these characters and who they are and why they're fighting for their life. Oh, the entire film has been set up for this scene. If, if, if the scene has worked, if what's happened before has worked in the film, you are caring for these characters and hoping they survive. You do. I think we know we know O'Neill at this stage of the film. O'Neill knows that he has, you know, the, the weapon has been changed. His mission now is not to blow the place up, but also save everybody, not just the Earth, but also these his now friends and you know his the, the children, the people, the the, the indigenous people are now helping helping him. We've got O'Neill, we got, uh, I said again, we've got Jackson, who is, you know, is uh, in love with Sherry. And earlier in the film, I think, uh, this is not a port spoiler, Jackson dies. And and somehow he, he comes back to life with his device. It's a very, like, Egyptian sort of mummy-ish device. And he decides to use, during during the, the, the battle, Sherry gets shot by the Garuda, which ends up with a fist fight with uh, O'Neill. Really, all out, all out action, and it's really, really exciting. Sitting at the what's that stake with the bomb going down and down, you know, the, the countdown, and that. It's a very exciting, very exciting scene. This is like the, the, the payoff of all the, what's gone before, and it works really well. Particularly thanks to Arnold's music. There's a lot of John Williams sort of feel with the the the, 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 the cattle trumpet, but there's also an element mm -hmm. that comes into it. There's another composer who's come into the mix now in on Arnold's soundscape. You've had a bit of John Barry, you've had a bit of John Williams, but now he introduces, I think, one of his all-time favorite British composers, Ron Goodwin. There's oh yeah. Because in okay. the music you hear in the background, six three three squadron. Da -da 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 David Arnold was a fan of Ron Goodwin and he showed that in that music. Because it, and he has, because it, with, with the Stargate theme, got 
Six foot feet is good. Mm-hmm. I don't know how how well known that is in your your neck of the woods, but it's one. It's a film which shows uh, called nineteen sixty three, starred Clint Robinson, has an ironic theme. Despite mm-hmm. the film not being that great, but the film, but the theme is one of those well known things that get played in concerts all over the world. And when I I still remember to this day, we're hearing it in the cinema. Oh my God, that's six three feet is one. <laughs> I know Ron Goodwin of um, he did Candle Shoe. And that's how I know him. Magnificent Men and a Flying Machine, where Eagles Dare, one of the great British composers. And in a way, considering it is, a, is a, the things flying in the air, that was a, it felt like a homage. Arnold paid his homage to Goodwin in that scene. Particularly with the, the second part of the theme, that da 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 And he uses that, that, the Goodwin sound behind it, and it works so well. This is, as I said, this is a composer who's really showing everybody. This is what this is what I can do with an action score. Like all good, all good action scenes, his music adds to the action. We can't we can't say anything higher than that. Yep. So now let's go ahead and play the battle at the pyramid.
Oh, I love that action cue. Oh, that <laughs> it's was so good. Exciting, wasn't it? Oh. Yeah. All right. So we're at the second to last cues that we're going to discuss today. Um, this one is really important for the film. Um, this changes the course of the miners. Yes. Um, and this shows the leader, Kusov to be that leader that he really needs to be. And this scene, I love how it begins because it reminds me of Lawrence of Arabia. Yes. And it's lush. It has the representation of the main Stargate theme and gives us like this liberation mm. uh, for the people. And he's finally seen the light like Kusov, he he really like before he thought oh these are our gods and we have to serve them but then when o'neill shows him or no it's jackson jackson, jackson. jackson shows him these, and he's like these are no look gods. at them now press the, press the button and suddenly you see yeah. human they, they, they're like you and it took took the character a while when you see that he when when you is a typical the, the classic moment like in Lord of the Rings and you know, all, all is lost, they're doomed. Yeah, nobody's going to save them. Suddenly, from the hills, here they come. Here comes Gandalf and his group. It's not like they were pre prefacing Lord of the Rings, as it were, or the two towers. The you know, out, out of when all, all is lost, Kasuf and everybody else comes down from another sand dune, and mm -hmm. that's it. The uh, the over the bad guys overrun, and they take and. The revolution has begun, 
and it, mm -hmm. it starts with a very interesting noise. This cue, that, that weird looking ethnic sound, like a like a like an electric valve yeah. instrument, that sets mm -hmm. up sets up the the revolution, sets up sets up the uh, the the rebellion. Yeah, it's almost like a unique. Yeah, like they put a filter on one of the the brass instruments and made it sound like it was very exotic mm. in nature you know and uh to go along with that it just it it has this fr frantic brass and this bombastic percussion as they're running down the hill yep. and kusas holding his staff and he's like attacking one of the the guards and it just it's this hero moment for Kusak because I, it's just it's so wonderful because David Arnold is at the top of his game right now as a 90s action score and it's the sound is just sublime and it's just wonderful he's enjoying himself he can clearly see it in yeah. the music and it is again a bit more about Goodwin appears you know that is uh the John Williams part, but also the climatic sequences when the... It reminds me now, like a few years down the line, it's very similar in feel to how it ends Independence Day. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, the, way, the guy goes up and you, you see he, he tries to escape from his, his ship. Rao turns back to his alien self and he's always got away and suddenly he sees the bomb and thinks, oh, I'm a goner. And he goes, boom. And set up beautifully again, and you know, ends up with a crescendo the build up. Then suddenly he sees the bomb, and suddenly builds up a lovely crescendo for the and boom, just just <laughs> like just like that, just like that. Yeah, it's yep. but the music sets up it's again. The the, the raw stuff comes into its end again. The raw theme is there, the choir is there, and it's a big crescendo at the end with orchestra and choir for the mm -hmm. explosion. Yet, yet again, it shows how Arnold has developed already in one film, in one, one major movie. But this is a very important score for David Arnold, because I think for one, one, if it wasn't for this being so as good as it is, mm -hmm. he wouldn't have been doing Independence Day, he wouldn't be doing Godzilla, he wouldn't have been doing, he wouldn't even be doing the Bond films. I mean, he needed yeah. somebody to take over John Barry at the time, and he mm -hmm. was always, even mid the score, you, you could see that he would fit the bill perfectly. There's so much variety on this score, and with the help of his collaborator Nicholas Dodd, we can't forget what Nicholas Dodd did because his work, because they both collaborated so well on this on, on this score. This is a this you could you couldn't get a better calling card for a composer saying this is what I can do. You know, this is this is this is how this is the the sort of music I can give give a director if given the right sort of material. There's some I can really you know get my teeth into and. Arnold did that in spades in this film. Well, let's go ahead and play Kusoff Returns.
We've reached another end to Soundtrack Alley. Um, I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. You can find his work at xanderscores.com. Um, check out the programming through Cinematic Sound Radio Network, where Jason and myself have shows. Uh, Jason, you're doing the archive show, and then your interview shows are now called what? Talking Soundtracks. Cool. Well, to close the show today, I'd like to play us the ending cue to Stargate, which is the end credits. Um, and it's not super long, which is okay, but it really brings out that full orchestral version of the Stargate theme, and it kind of ends as an ensemble piece. And of course, we it reprises the Mastage theme along, along with that Stargate motif and it really ends the score really just a really pleasurable way um, and and what I love about it is that even with it saying the end at the end of the credits uh, the end credits come out yes just a tad and I'm like oh that's so cool <laughs> oh, and it was such a simple element I'll see you again Jackson and he walks in yeah and off he goes mm-hmm. I forgot to say before the end of that uh, cutoff returns I think at the end of that major fight at Kurt Russell he has one of my favourite line in the film Kurt Russell puts me in the group and he says give my regards to King Tut and I love yep. that I love that <laughs> it's a great line oh. it really is so what are your thoughts on the end credit queue? There is a thing about end credits in these in those days. A good example is Jay Gorse with end credit queue for um, Total Recall. It, it, or, or even even better, like a few years later, The Mummy. He starts with the original piece of music. Starts, starts the, you know, or even, for example, Bat, Batman as well is a good example. Danny Elfman's Batman, even though that was added on then by songs by Prince. It's only like a one and a half minute like introduction to the own credits, and then suddenly it fades out, and then we have then have the medley of cues already. Which is a shame, really. I, it's a lovely piece. It's, it's a shame we wasn't allowed to do like one great big orchestral suite of the music that like we had. Michael Giacchino is a master of. But one of the ones I do enjoy listening to a lot is Basil Polidoris's entitled is ten minutes long for Starship Troopers." Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I, I always think that the end credits is a good chance for the composer to really show what he can do. This is just like, his, okay, okay, people live in the cinema, but a lot of people be sitting there wanting to enjoy like a suite of the new music they've just heard. And uh, some, it feels, if one, it's, it's, it's good in its way, but I'd love to hear him expand it. He did. He, mm-hmm. did he, he he kind of learned his lesson for Independence Day because he actually did that. Yeah, the one of the real great end, end credit cue on, on Independence Day. So I don't know if he was told to do this, but I would have loved him to just just keep going. You know, play play do not not have a cut and paste job which he gets if you got if you got at the end after that cue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, Jason, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, it's, it's been, been a real it's treat. Been fun. Yeah, I've I've really enjoyed having you on the show, and so now we'll play the end credits. And until next time, 
Happy listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the show, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter, at Cinematic Sound on Facebook, and from wherever you're listening to us today, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Reviews help introduce potential new listeners to the show. While you're at it, head over to TeePublic to find yourself a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt and support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>